Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your graciousness. We thank you for your love. Lord, we thank you that you adopted us into your family. Lord, we are thankful for you, and we're thankful for that hope that we have in you. And Lord, we know that one day we will see you, and we will all be together. What a day that'll be, with no more sin or heartache or suffering. Lord, we're eager for that day. Uh, Lord, help us, though, as we wait for it, as we faithfully endure the suffering and the joys of this life. Uh, Lord, help us uh, to keep our faith in you, to be pure, to be steadfast, to be diligent, to love others, and to love you. And Lord, be with us this morning. Help us. Direct us. Lord, uh, speak to our hearts. Lord, help us to grow in our faith and in our hope. And help us to put it in you above anything else. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're, if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. Uh, we are in the, well, not in the middle anymore. I guess now we're in the, the last parts of our study here in the book of Daniel. Uh, last week, uh, Craig Butler preached, and we're now into the vision section of Daniel. We've gone through that narrative, and the narrative of Daniel is really powerful, where you really see this picture of the life that we're all called to live, right? Daniel lives the life that we were all meant to live. Daniel lives the life, ultimately, that Christ will live, this life life of faithfulness in a world that is unfaithful, a life of submission and kindness, but also of rebellion as well against the authorities, but in a way that loves his authorities and his enemies. I mean, Daniel's life is, is truly an amazing life. Here in these last sections where we get to the visions, and like as Craig preached last week and this week we're going to be going through Daniel chapter 7's vision, um, we really start to get a picture, I think of the motivations why Daniel is able to live this life of distinction. As we get a vision, a picture of God and a picture of what this life and this world really is. So if you have your Bible, open it up to Daniel chapter 7. We're going to go through uh, this chapter here together. So starting in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, 
before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. It's this vision of monsters. I mean, it's a very terrifying dream in so many ways. And as Craig talked about last week, you know, that we're we're no longer in this narrative kind of form anymore. It's no longer kind of a story of Daniel and a plot with, you know, dialogue and all those things. Now we're in this realm of apocalyptic literature, right? This is end times pictures. It's, it's for, far more like reading uh, fantasy. It's almost like reading like J.R. Tolkien, like Lord of the Rings, more than it is reading like a historical narrative where you have these fantastical beasts, visions and metaphors. Nothing seems to be what it seems to be. <laughs> and everything has these other connotations you're supposed to associate it with. And above all, this dream is supposed to be one that is just terrifying. These beasts coming out of the sea. And in the ancient world, the sea was the home of everything evil and chaos. You know, so much mystery surrounding it. Right? So much unknown. Uh, unlike today, it's right, just a place to go vacation or go see. But for them, the sea was, that would have been the producer of all of these great, evil, horrible monsters. And these monsters are terrifying. Because in and of themselves, they are just evil. That's what Daniel's dream is. You see these evil beasts, agents of chaos and destruction that will come one after another. A parade of more and more frightening creatures with that lion at the beginning with the head of an eagle. A bear that's either deformed or is just ready to strike and devour, right, with the victim already still in its mouth of, its, of the last thing that it ate. And you have the leopard, that's part bird with four heads. It is terrifyingly fast and quick and agile, right? Nothing will escape it on land or in the air. And then that final beast, so terrifying for Daniel that he can't even describe it, right? He has to go to great lengths to try to describe that final beast with these, this imagery of iron teeth and ten horns, and that horn, these horns are the symbols of strength. So what Daniel is trying to tell you is this last beast, beast is just terrifying in its strength. Unmatched in terms of its ability to crush and destroy things. And the intention is pretty clear. The intention is meant to terrify. Daniel was meant to be terrified by this vision. We're meant to be terrified by the vision. That these beasts are clearly going to be working against the people of God. One after the other. Now the reader then, and now, right, it's easy to identify them as kings and kingdoms of this world that will rise up. That's how the original audience read it. You read this and you say, oh yeah, I get it. That beast is this kingdom. That's the Persians. These are the Greeks. These are the Romans. All right, I get it. And every generation that's read these visions, that's read this, has done this. We say, oh, well, which beast is which? Which kingdom is which? The vision tells us very clearly, right, that our world is going to be run right, by a succession of evil and more terrifying kingdoms and kings, one after the other. That every generation there will be another king and kingdom that will be just as terrifying or more terrifying than the last. And we have this temptation then to overly identify them as historical empires, which is easy to do and is fair to do on one level. Because like I said, the original audience read this 
And they would identify it with their kingdoms that they knew. Absolutely. And then when Christians read this in the Middle Ages, they did the same thing then. As Christians read it today, we do the same things now. It's, it's easy to do that. But it's a, kind of a both and. We don't want to overly identify them with historical context with historical empires because then it goes against the intention of the literature. The intention of this story is really to show us the continual presence of the beast. You guys went through Revelation with George. The intention is to show you that just when you think one beast is gone, another will come. Once you think this kingdom is passed and there never could be another bad kingdom again, another evil, horrible, terrifying kingdom will rise. The narrative doesn't end right with one beast, but it continually comes. But the story continues in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked, and then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of, their, of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom which shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It's an amazing picture. So you start with these beasts terrifying and then the ancient of days arrives in glory and power and that picture of the heavenly court, right? I mean, this, this is the apocalyptic literature, what it does for us, right? It's, it's supposed to just spark imagination, right? All these images. And what an image he gives. Power of purity, the whiteness of him, the throne of fire with wheels of fire, fire spearing forth. I mean, this is the true judge of the world has arrived and sits on his throne and is able to judge the earth, and he kills and destroys that final beast. And the other beasts lose their kingdoms. It's remarkable. Especially when you kind of consider where this is in Scripture. Ancient Israel was very reluctant, right? Never really described God very often. <laughs> right? She'll make no images of him. Right? I mean, they don't really describe him very much. Daniel's does. Right, Daniel really starts to describe God for us because we're at this point in Israel's history where they need to be woken up in exile. They need to start thinking a little differently. They need to start being captured by a vision of who God is and of that final day of judgment. And so he gives this fantastic imagery that's meant to draw our attentions away from the kings and the kingdoms of this world. 
Right? This is the first year of Belshazzar. Right? Wake up, Israel. Right? Stop being so seduced by these kings around you and these kingdoms. These kings and kingdoms are not that great. They're not as powerful as they look like. Right? Wake up and see the true king of this world, the true judge who has true power, true authority, who sits on a true th- a throne, who will judge the world. A better and more powerful image that's meant to capture our imaginations. This is what Daniel is doing. But then as that narrative continues, the Ancient of Days is not alone. Right? If you look back, with him is one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. The God of the universe comes down and with him riding on the clouds is this one man. But, the, but Daniel's unsure if he's a man. It looks like a man who's coming down with God. And it must have been a puzzling picture for Daniel. A person with divine traits who appears like a human, but not quite, who seems to be both God and man, something unique, something to his humanity, but also something to him that seems very godly, divine. He has authority. It seems like a man who is riding down from heaven with the authority of a God. Is really the way that Daniel is describing him. Coming on the clouds, that's an ancient phrase that was always reserved for a god would ride on the clouds. Who else can ride on a cloud? And when he arrives, the Ancient of Days gives him all authority, which also would be puzzling for an ancient Jew. He receives all of the worship of every people, of every nation, of every language, not the Ancient of Days. To him is given an everlasting and indestructible dominion. Again, what should be the Ancient of Days is given to this one who looks like a man. And really, that should be the end of the chapter. That should be the end of the vision. Yeah, the beasts, terrifying, destroyed by God himself. And then this one true king, right, who gets dominion over the whole world that everyone will worship forever. But the chapter doesn't end. Daniel doesn't know what to think because it's a confusing image for him. And so he starts asking questions. Verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. That should be enough for Daniel. But he keeps pressing. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. The focus of this, right, is it's not meant to be on the beasts. 
Right? And it's pretty clear. The focus of this vision is meant to be on that Son of Man, on the Ancient of Days, on the eventual victory of the saints. But Daniel keeps pushing. Right? He was given the vision, but he keeps pushing. He wants to know more. Right? He's terrified of the vision, and he wants to know more, specifically about that fourth and final beast. Because right, he sees that beast prevailing against the saints. He sees the church losing in this battle. And he wants to know, right, who is this beast? Verse 23. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. the end of the vision. Daniel approaches the angel right after seeing this vision of terrifying beasts and of an eventual victory of the saints. Right after this, he asks for an interpretation. Right? He wants to know more specifically about the beasts and when will they come and what are they and the angel focuses the story for us. He interprets it all for us and for Daniel. Right? And he tells us the four beasts are four kingdoms that will rise. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever and ever and ever. It's a beautiful, beautiful message. The angel is not interested in identifying the beasts. Doesn't tell you which kingdoms they are. In fact, seems to go over it very quickly. Said, Look, there are four kingdoms that will come. Don't you get it, Daniel? Daniel keeps pushing, and he really wants especially some information about that fourth beast. And the, the reply is so vague, right, that it could be almost any kingdom. A kingdom who will rule over almost the whole world, right, devouring it, and other kings will come, and one more. Yeah, you can make a case for a lot of different kingdoms over history that could have fit that picture. Then, throughout history, today, in the future, I'm sure, but again, the angel redirects Daniel's question, right, where he really almost just speaks to Daniel saying, Daniel, you're missing the point. Yes, the horn will assail God's people, and it's going to be a terrible time. Like, yes, this is going to happen. But look beyond the horn, right? The point of the vision is that the time when the beast will oppress the saints is limited. It'll only be for a time, and then it'll stop. Beyond it, 
Beyond the image of that final beast, right, lies a scene of a heavenly court where the beast will finally be tamed and destroyed. Then the sovereignty, the power, and the greatness of God will be handed over to the people of the Most High God, to the Son of Man, whose kingdom will never end. Daniel just doesn't fully get it. He's troubled. For obvious reasons. And really, we're in a similar spot oftentimes when we come to these types of messages or these types of imagery. The whole chapter ends with that phrase, right? As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. And for many of us, right, we look around and are troubled as well. We look and are just as confused as Daniel has. I don't know how much of your upbringing, right, was, was Christian. Some of us, right, grew up Christian, studying end times prophecies. I don't know if anybody read the Left Behind book series uh, or saw the terrible Nick Cage movie, I think. I don't know. Not a good movie. But it, there's been a lot of troubling and disturbing stories around the end of the world where... Christians too. We, we hear this. We read these prophecies of the end. We read books like Revelation. George went through it for us, which is so great. Right? Where we look at the kingdoms of our world, we see these things and we say, what is going on? Right? Is this the end? Is this the generation of the end? Is this kingdom one of these beasts? It's difficult for us. We don't know what to do with prophecies. We don't know what to do with apocalyptic literature. We don't know what to do, really, even just with the time that we live in. Right? Sometimes we're overly quick right, to identify a certain time as the end times and say, this is it. This kingdom is the last beast and everything is going downhill and then God finally is going to come back. Or we're too quick to completely go the opposite direction and say, you know what, forget that stuff. You can't pick... You, we don't know who the beasts are. You know what? Let's just keep going. Not realizing, right, how terrified we should be of the age that we live in and our own country and kingdom that we are a part of. Too quick to find distant beasts in other places at other time periods and fail to see the terrifying monsters that are at our doorstep. Where we can easily get into those two places and where we get very confused <laughs> to the point where we just don't know what to do. <laughs> The message of Daniel 7 is actually very, very clear. Right? The, the angel continually refined it and clarified it for Daniel and for all of us. And that message is, right, God is in control of all things. That's the message of all of Daniel. Right? This is our hope. God is ultimately in control. That until that final day, right, when the Son of Man comes, and oh, we're eager for that final day when the Son of Man comes, until then, this world will be ruled by monsters. That's the message. Every government, every nation that's ever existed on our planet is a fulfillment of this vision. There are no such things, right, as Christian nations, no true Christian kings, no true Christian kingdoms of this world. They're all imposters. That's what Daniel teaches us. They're given, every king, no matter how godly or good, 
has been given authority by God. Right? They're not true kings. That's Daniel. Right? No king is truly the true king. No kingdom is the true kingdom. They all pale in comparison right, with the true king and with his true kingdom. And you're supposed to compare that ancient of days coming. Every other king pales in comparison to that true king. No other king is a true king in comparison. There's only one true everlasting kingdom. And that'll be the kingdom of God with the Son of Man ruling over it. And so the danger for us, right, the danger for them, for Israel at the time and for us now, is it's very easy to be seduced by the kings and the kingdoms all around us. Where we fall into those traps where we either are too quick to see beasts everywhere, but again, we see them as very distant beasts, right? Like Russia could be it, but not America. Or we look historically and say Rome was it, but certainly not the Byzantine Empire. Or, right, in the future, it's coming, but we fail to see how terrifying our own age is. Or we become, right, just so have such a difficult time identifying any of them. So our kingdoms and the governments, our rulers around us are just mere placeholders. That's the message of Daniel. At best, a placeholder. At worst, a terrifying monster who will devour us. It's frightening. But that's the way we're supposed to view governments. It's the way we're supposed to view kingdoms around us as monsters. <laughs> that's not a lot of fun. <laughs> Uh, what about if we serve as officials in those for those? I mean, what, what am I supposed to do if I'm supposed to view kingdoms as monsters, as terrifying beasts? But we're supposed to walk away from Daniel seven, right? Daniel. This is why I think he's so terrified and disturbed, right? He loves Babylon. He loves the king. He loved Nebuchadnezzar. He's serving Belshazzar. But we're supposed to walk away from Daniel 7, and this is what apocalyptic literature does for us. We are to reimagine the world in light of these visions. He wants you to rethink things, to be shooken, to rethink about the way the world actually is, and to think about it properly, right? to actually see the world the way it really is, and to imagine what it'll be like in the end. Right? That's what should capture the hearts and the minds of the saints. A picture of what this world will be like. And to not be seduced by the pictures of what it is like. To see past the kingdoms of our age. And I think we start to see then how Daniel was really able to live such a life of distinction and love in his world that he lived. Right? If, if you are filled with these images, if you're filled with this, you know, he could see the world properly. It disturbed him, but he saw things properly. And it's hard for us to do this because we're very, very short-sighted. It's hard to see things long-term. We are very easily overcome either with fear or with an overconfidence and being comfortable. Right? If you just look at historical Christianity, right, Christians have been really motivated by both of those very quickly where we have a lot of fear and fear drives the church into all kinds of things very 
active lives of protest or of um, you know, trying to gain the grips of the kingdom right here on earth to change things, to get more influence and power in this world because we're losing it and what will happen to us if we lost our influence, what will happen to us if we lose our rights. And so there's a lot of fear and that motivates Christians. Or the church... Oftentimes, after a season of that, and it's gained power and influence and authority in the country or in the places where the church has been, it grows in apathy and overconfidence, right? And it fails to take seriously what's actually going on. Right? And it can't see beyond itself that it's actually participating in something pretty evil. We're very short-sighted. But we shouldn't be. Right? We shouldn't be very short-sighted because for us, especially for those of us right, who are familiar with the gospel, right? I mean, if, you, if you know the story of Jesus, which I pray that you do, if you don't know the story of Jesus, you should read, read the book of Mark. That's a good place to start. But if, if you're familiar at all with the story of Jesus Christ, we've seen the partial fulfillment of this prophecy. If you know who Jesus is, then when you read Daniel 7, Oh, I know who this is. (laughs) I know what's going on here. I know who this son of man is. For us, we know the identity of the person that Daniel saw. This will be the title that Jesus takes for himself, the son of man. This will be throughout the book of Mark and Matthew. He'll call himself the son of man, which is the perfect title for Jesus. Because Jesus is this, simply a human Right? A man in humility and in function. Right? And if you think about Jesus' life, what a human existence he had. Eating, sleeping, hungry, ministering to all types of people, to the prostitutes, to the tax collectors, wasting his time hanging out with little children. Just a simple human. No divine authority, it seems at all. Nothing special to this guy. Just a man. But then who is given the full glory of God at the same time. All authority given to him and the recipient of all worship. Right, this picture of that son of man is a really interesting one in the vision, right? This person who looks like a man but then doesn't seem to be a man because everybody worships him (laughs) and he's given the authority of a God. Well, it's Jesus His entire life is just a simple human life. But he has full authority and full power given to him. And everyone worships him. He forgives sins. He calms storms. He drives out demons. And he's constantly receiving praise and worship everywhere he goes. And he dies in our place. And he rises again to give life to everyone who believes in him. But we also know that that's not the end of the story of Jesus. He's coming again in power. Right? For many of us, and it's easy to end the story. Right? I think for a lot of Christians, functionally, the Bible ends in John. Right? We have Jesus died for your sins, rose again to secure new life for you, which is all true and good. And then that's it. All right. But if the story ends there, we lose sight of so much. Right? But we know that our hope is not just to go to heaven one day, but our hope is that Christ is coming back to this world. And he's going to make this world our home and all things 
new. If we lose sight of Christ's return, that coming on the clouds, that reigning in glory, if we lose sight of that, it's very easy to lose sight of this earth, to put either too little effort into the world, because look, the world is, you know, Look, this isn't my home anyway. I'm going to heaven. I don't have to worry about the world. I don't have to worry about the problems of this world. I'm just looking to escape it. Right? Historically, and Christians have done that lots. Or you can put too great of an emphasis in this world as well and think this is my home. This is the place I need to be. I'm the one who needs to fix this world. Jesus died so that I can do all this work. And then you functionally become the savior of the world. I've got to do all of the work. How can we have a hope in a future world and see things clearly? Right? How do I work and live in this world while waiting for the next? And I think that Daniel gives us this picture for us. How am I supposed to live and work? I have to have the gospel before me. We have to see the fullness of the gospel. We have to have our imaginations moved by a picture of who God is and of God coming again in glory of Jesus, the Son of Man, judging and ruling over this earth. Because the truth of the gospel really compels us, right? It tells me, on the one hand, that this world is far worse off than we thought it was. Right, if I have that picture, if Jesus has to come back, right, and those images of Revelation, those images of Daniel, are not a kind of friendly Jesus coming back, but a Jesus who is going to judge the world and destroy evil beasts, that confronts me with the reality that this world is actually a lot more evil than I give it credit for. That there is a lot more terrifying things to this life than I want to believe. Because my natural inclination, right, is to, then it's not that bad. Nothing's really, it's not that bad. At least we don't have it as bad as. No, this world is bad and is only getting worse. The saints are going to suffer the church is going to suffer until the Son of Man comes back. That really confronts me. It helps me to see the world honestly and say, you know, this world is not as great of a place as I want to think it is. But it also confronts me and makes me realize, right, that the, better, the world is also, though, far more loved than I give it credit for. Because Christ loves it enough to come back to redeem it. <laughs> So while there is great evil and pain and suffering and injustice in this world, Christ does not just leave it on its own. This whole world is being redeemed and he will come back for it, just like he is for me. So I can honestly evaluate my life and my world and I can see, right, this world is not my home. I do not fit in here. I'm in exile and it's evil. But it will be my home one day. Christ will make it my home. So the gospel gives us this hope then. Christ gives us this hope. Daniel is meant to inspire the captives in exile to give them hope. And for us, it does the same, right? I mean, so for many of us, we struggle, right? Like Daniel does. I mean, it, as you are navigating the political landscape of America, right, in the last year or so, right? For many of you, you're like, oh, last year, try doing it for 20 years. It's a struggle to know how involved should I be in politics? How critical should I be in politics? Should I go into politics? Can, I, can a Christian do... I mean, is this a struggle for you? Are you struggling, right, with 
just environmental issues or how do I live in this world? How do I take care of this world? What should I do in this world? What, how, what should my legacy be in this world? How do I work? You know, do you struggle with how much emphasis do you put into your work, into how much you should save, how much em- emphasis and energy and time you should put into your neighborhood, to your city? Do you feel like the monsters are winning? Right? Many of us have just given up hope and feel like the world is run by monsters. Right? This, this world is a lost cause. Why even try anymore? Or, and this is more where I am, right? are you oblivious to the monsters? <laughs> have you gotten so used to living in Babylon that you can't even clearly see what should be terrifying to you? People bowing down to idols, worshiping false gods every day, kings and queens that rule over us, not just on a government level, right, but in a daily life level. Have you gotten to the place where you, you're, you're not scared enough, right, where you should be frightened? So how do we deal with these things? We have to renew our mind with the picture of Christ. You have to have Christ before you, but not just Christ on the cross, which is important, right? which is everything, but it doesn't end there. Our gospel can't end with Christ dying on the cross, nor even with him rising from the dead. The New Testament doesn't end with the crucifixion. Right? The New Testament ends with Christ coming again, coming as our king, coming to make all things new. Keep that image before us, right? Imagine it. Imagine that picture. What will this life look like on that day when Jesus comes back, when the King of glory rides down on the clouds and all evil is wiped out from this earth and the saints inherit the kingdom? That's our hope. That has to be our hope. Right? Otherwise, if your hope is just for your own individual salvation, <laughs> we lose that. We become quickly seduced. We, have, we fail to live those lives of distinction right? because we put all of the hope in ourselves for how we live this life. We hope for Jesus and that we'll get to heaven one day, but my life now doesn't really ultimately matter as much. But if I really believe that Jesus is coming back to redeem this world and that I will inherit it, well, I'm going to work for it. I'm going to take part in it now. Right? It's like telling your children or being told by your parent, right? Like, all of this is yours. <laughs> Care for this, right? This plot of land, this property is yours one day. It's mine right now. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to give it to you. Well, what are, they, what are you going to do with that plot of land? What are you going to do with that inheritance that awaits you? You're going to see the fault. You're going to see the sin. You're going to work against it. You're going to faithfully rebel against the monsters that are trying to destroy it. But you also know that it's not your job to win that battle. You know that your father is coming back to win the battle and give that to you. It gives you hope. It helps us to live these lives then of distinction and of hope, of faithfulness but also of rebellion against. Right? I can clearly point and say, you're a monster. The love of money in this world is a terrifying monster. I don't need to do these things. I will not be seduced by everything in this world that offers me power, offers me life, because it hails in comparison to the true king. 
So it enables me to live with honesty, but at the same time serving it and loving the people in this world because I know that one day my father is going to return and he's going to make everything right. So we look forward to the day when Christ comes back and we spend our time imagining it, singing about it, talking about it, telling our kids about it, right? The ending of the story. We know the ending. And that was the gift that Daniel got. He got to see the end. For us, as Christians, right? We're even in a better position than Daniel. We know the end, and we also know the beginning. We've seen the foretaste of all of this. We know the fulfillment of this, this vision. We know where this world is going, and it gives us hope. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you that you are the king of heaven. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us on our own in this world. Lord, we thank you that you are coming again in glory, that you are sending your son to rule over us, that our king, the king who is going to rule over us is the same king who died for us, Oh, who are we that we deserve such a king? Lord, help us. Strengthen us now. Lord, strengthen us not to lose hope in the midst of our suffering and the pain and the evil of our world. Lord, help us to see both the bad and the good, to see the work of redemption that you are doing, to faithfully serve you and to love our enemies to faithfully serve this kingdom, even knowing that it's not our home. Lord, we are eager for the day when you come back. Lord, help us to never lose sight of that eventual day. Continue to give us just those tastes of the kingdom that is to come as we experience them together, as we sing of them, as we talk of them. Lord, just strengthen us. Help us to grow in our knowledge of you and our ability to be loved by you. In your name we pray. Amen.